Welcome to the Filament Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. All right. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm real good. I would purchase the LP from which this theme song has sprung. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's, it's really good. It's rock solid, man. Mm-hmm. How are you today, man? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a bit turgid, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I just had two waffles. Yeah. Yeah. We should, they qualify, were thin waffles. We should qualify that. <laughs> yeah. They were, they were thin waffles. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want people to think I'm some kind of food-consuming monster. Yeah, it, it it may be the case that I end up just speaking by myself while Dan takes a na- uh, a waffle nap. A waffle nap, waffle downtime, which we will record. Just a gentle waffle snooze. I would listen to a band called Waffle Downtime. Actually, now that I think about it, <laughs> it would be like a, you know, kind of a meditative electro. Yeah. 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 Kind totally. of boards a can kind of thing. Yeah, like some ambience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The soundtrack to your Waffle Downtime. Yeah, Waffle Downtime. Check them out, guys. So today, we have some things to talk about, believe it or not. Oh. Two main things. You know, uh, anything, really. Mm-hmm. But but two main things. Two main things. Yeah. The first thing is we want to discuss verisimilitude of games, which is a nice, heady concept. I might be too turgid to handle that, <laughs> but let's keep it. Yeah, let's, let's keep it going. <laughs> we'll do our best. Again, right, yeah. you have the license... To an to enact waffle downtime. There it is. All right. Oh, yeah. Almost passed out. That was good. Yeah. I thought that was from the soundboard for a second. No, no, that was me, man. Wow. Um, and then the other thing we wanted to talk about, which you may feel more equal to, but you mm-hmm. also might not, mm-hmm. is scope of games. Oh, sure. So, how to determine the best areas for a game to teach? Where does the game come in during the process of teaching? Mm-hmm. How do we avoid misconceptions when we scope a game? Sure. Last time we had talked about this idea that you can kind of go too far and the user may have more expertise and may be able to poke holes in the semblance of an experience that you're trying to create mm, with that yes. game. Mm-hmm. So we could try verisimilitude of games. We could give that a shot. Let's do it. All right. So I think the most obvious inroad to that is we had talked about it within the framing of, of SimCity last time. And I know that Will Wright and SimCity are near and dear to your heart. I, I just was talking about him today. Yeah. Yep. That's weird. Kind of weird. That is weird. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's almost like you really are interested in yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just kind of, yeah, it's, it's just like literally an hour ago. I was like, well, you know, Will Wright, SimCity. So, man. And everyone's eyes glazed over. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, there, there goes, he goes. There goes Norton again. We should go back to eating that waffle. <laughs> so what is gained and what is lost? By the attempt of creating verisimilitude of games, it's hard not to get super hippie on the concept because you have to get into the idea of like you know what is real, man. Um, so there's a I don't even know if this is an interview or just a snippet of a long time ago Shigeru Miyamoto of Nintendo fame was talking about how he's not at all interested in creating real game experiences. He's like, oh, let's just we can do better than that. We can do better than real. I remember that was an alarming and interesting thing to sort of talk about. Because, I mean, the game the game is a, some type of construct, right? You're making a, to use the word loosely, a simulation of something, right? You're creating a set of rules and inputs and outputs, uh, and you're placing the player in some role inside it. So you made all these decisions about how that little teeny universe is going to work. 
So you're modeling something. Right. I think the core assumption is like, well, of course, if you're modeling something, you must be modeling something and that fidelity is a goal. Mm-hmm. Well, it should be as close to the real thing as possible. And that's just not true. That's just, uh, you know, we edit our own experience every day to be as fake as possible so we can manage it. Right. That's like true. we ignore huge swaths of what's going around us so that we can still put our pants on and talk to people and function. You know, like, I don't know what kind of shoes you're wearing today. I mean, there's just this, like, gray ether in my head of, like, what your feet are, right? And my, my But I'm not disturbed by that. Right. My brain's just been like, forget it. Forget yeah. it. Brand shoes, not important. Unimportant. Although now I have to check real quick. What do we got? I forget what they're, they're the Chippewas. Oh, they are. oh yeah. yeah that, oh, those are nice shoes. Yeah, okay. they are nice, yeah. Yeah, so when we're making a learning game, we know that we want you to come out of the experience the other side knowing a thing or be able to do a thing or think about a thing in a way you didn't before. And to me, that's the fidelity. Mm. You're trying to be honest to that thing. I mean, there's very often when you're learning something, you will create a convenient lie that can scaffold you into a better understanding. And then maybe later on when you're a master expert, you'd be like, oh, that was a trick all along. Right. Right. It turns out chords on guitars aren't just a set of shapes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it turns out, yeah, an atom, that's what we talked about last time. An atom isn't just an attractive set of swirling dots mm-hmm. around a larger dot. Exactly. Uh, you know, so, but those are useful tools. Those are useful lies. So but I think that's kind of basically it. You just want to make sure that if your learning objectives are clearly structured you can just you return to those, make sure you're being honest and faithful to the actual impact you want to have on the user. That's kind of your fidelity check. If there's any other fidelity check, it's you don't accidentally, you don't want to create some type of construct that's so large that is going to lead to them knowing how something works incorrectly in like some other place or department, right? You don't want to like, uh, I actually, you know, this is a kind of a, a common one, I think. Uh, mm. Often when you start thinking about trying to make a game about evolution, you're like, oh, it'd be great. Like you can have a creature die and then like you can like look at its genes and like choose the genes to like maybe change it and make it so it can swim or fly or have camouflage. And, you know, you're you're talking about you could be actually successfully talking about sort of genetics and adaptation. But you accidentally lied. You accidentally created a, a creative design game. Mm-hmm. Right. You're like, oops. Uh <laughs> <laughs> there is not some invisible hand making each selection. Right. Uh, it's really just who manages to eat the food, stay warm, and make babies. And mm-hmm. that's what's guiding this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're trying to make a game about evolution and you made a game about accidentally about intelligent design, right. you would be bummed. Even yeah. though, obviously, a lot of the same parts are present and interesting. You know, so I think you know it's very natural to... To think about wanting to give the player agency, right? That's how you can get inter- interact with the system through agency. So having them pick things right. seems like a good way, but you've accidentally hit this landmine of like, oh, that's the opposite of what I wanted to tell you. Yep. And it's all agency's fault. Yeah, it's all agency's <laughs> fault, right? Which is, you know, agency is one of our, the things that the game designer brings out of the toolbox to make a game better. So it's like, mm-hmm. you, you hit a live wire in that case. Yep. So, you know, I think verisimilitude is something that can be applied across a spectrum of things within the realm of learning games because Mm -hmm. on the one hand you have more simplistic representations Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other hand you have a straightforward simulation. Mm -hmm. So 
I guess, how do we strike that balance? So when we have a, a client that comes to us and is like, the people who play this game really do need to understand how to operate a submarine after they're done with it, mm-hmm. you know, versus people in this game need to understand how an underwater ecosystem might function. Mm-hmm. I think that's where you see the dividing line is you've got, with a simulation, you have a lot more specificity sure. that influences how much authenticity you bring into the experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas something that's more of an abstraction, that's something that's got a softer, more generalized learning objective mm-hmm. like that, that is, it, and really it's higher level, right? It's more systemic mm-hmm. as opposed to a, acquiring a specific skill set. I think that's another way that there's sort of a branching path mm-hmm. in terms of how you implement this sort of character to a game. I think that's true. I do think that what you just said had a bit of a, a secret assumption inside it that one of the things that makes that you must operate a submarine scenario so obviously click into the idea of like high fidelity talk about realism a lot is that the assessment of that learning objective is so straightforward mm. we're like oh we're quite possibly going to have someone sit down inside a submarine and do this thing right and so the reality of how tractionable the assessment is for that game gives you a lot of suddenly clear guidance over Mm. how you would want to develop the game itself. Like if you're like, well, they're going to have to learn how to use this very specific keyboard layout to do these very specific things inside the submarine. You're not going to make it a game about a wizard that's, you know, building potions that represent different submarine uh, abilities, right? It's going to be about using the submarine interface to accomplish submarining goals. So what else is there to say about authenticity in learning games? I think it's a really it's a it's a great thing to talk about and I often find myself in a weird position trying to impress upon people that all of our estimations of what reality or realism is uh, is already overrated, you know, and that's 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 often a tough sell. Right. Cuz I'm like, well, I'm trying to talk about how to make a learning game, but I'm trying to convince you that uh, your your version of reality is far closer to an opinion than you might like. That's no. always a weird conversation. Yeah, uh, there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of philosophical background required to exactly. com- to compute about that. Yeah, it's tough. So I like to yeah just focus on the fact that you have a very real focused objective for what you want this game to do. You want this game to impact someone in a particular way, and that's where your allegiance lies in terms of what's real and what's not. That learning objective is real, Brandon. Yes. That outcome is real. So there's your focus. And then when you make decisions to move into the fantastic or inaccurate, line them up with the objectives and see what type of sin you've committed. Mm. Maybe it's forgivable. You know, we're focusing heavily on the kind of mechanical aspects of it, mm-hmm. but I'm interested too in like kind of your opinions on just aesthetic choices, mm. right? So like I've talked to art director Trevor Brown about the way that him and his, he and his team go about creating authenticity. And it's, it really is a, a process of combing through, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of reference points and mm-hmm. uh, creating mood boards and style guides and and customs if it's a if it's a regional uh, product that mm-hmm. we're making, mm-hmm. and so 
you know, how crucial is that to to the learning objective, or is that really just kind of you know dressing to make the player more comfortable? Ah, that's a super interesting question. When I think about the art direction, concepting, or aesthetic decisions for a game, I think about it a lot in terms of uh, well, actually, kind of the same metric I hold up for just enjoying art in general. Right? Mm. Is that the game is going to present some type of visual end of sentence. There's things you're going to be looking at in the game, <laughs> right? And then the player is going to look at those things and evaluate uh, the quality, how they connect to that experience. And w- one of the most important things when you're playing a game is consistency, like an internal consistency, that the things feel like that they belong together and that they were done on purpose, right? Because a lot of the time for having an aesthetic experience, it's that you can connect to and appreciate the context a lot of that obviously depends on who you are and what kind of context you bring to bear to try and align with it. But good art and a good game experience need to have a consistent theme and, and style so that you can tell that it was done on purpose. Right. Right. And it's funny, like that's sort of like if there's any one secret rule to even like fine art, it's like, well, it's got to be on purpose. Yes. Intentional. Right? And right. yeah, the, the intent is clear. Right. Like, you know, when people talk about well, I mean, obviously, it's like super old news at this point, but like something like Pollock, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. big discussion was like, well, couldn't you do that on accident? Mm-hmm. Essentially, right? right? And then the debate was people were like, well, no, or of course you could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that was a huge part of the controversy is like, was he making really important aesthetic decisions? Right. Was his control of where paint landed enough? Or yeah, so yeah, so context and purposefulness is like really important. So when we create a game aesthetic, it should feel like a world that it's obvious to the player that us the creators, we designed it looking forward to them inhabiting it. Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, because I think that's the thing is it's often creators of art think of their art as completely standing alone as its own thing on its own merit, so that they they ultimately aren't they aren't there. And they dissolve. But I don't think that's true. I think more often than not, when you're considering an an artistic or aesthetic experience, you're also trying to figure out why it was made and why it was there and who did that. Right. And then would you like that person? Mm -hmm. (laughs) A little bit, right? Right. And, you know, it's it's funny because when you're in writer's workshops, which I have been in many, the idea is that you're not supposed to be able to see the author's hand. Mm Mm-hmm. That being said, if it's a truly talented author, you can always see their hand, mm-hmm. but you can just see it being used skillfully. Right. And so that's kind of what you're hitting on there is like this idea of like, well, obviously the artist is there. Mm-hmm. Like you, we know that someone has created this, that this did not just manifest out mm-hmm. of thin air mm-hmm. or, you know, a random arrangement of bites. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an element of when there's craft in something, you can see the author's hand, but it doesn't bother you. Yep. Because, you know, it was used. It was used well. Now another area that I'm that I'm interested in when mm-hmm. we're talking about authenticity is how you make a game sound authentic. So Josh, how do you make games sound authentic? How do you make them sound real? What's your process? Yeah, well, I can think of a couple things where I'd have to make different choices. And the first is a little more straightforward. It's it's when something in the game has a real world sound effect. So whether it's 
a dog barking or someone walking on grass versus concrete. I mean, those are things that happen in the real world. Most of us have heard those things in the real world. So we, we expect a certain thing to happen when we hear it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I either get those exact sounds, those real world sounds or, or choose to do something stylistically that's close to those things. Um, the other is a little more difficult to think about. And it's when something in the game does not have a real world sound effect. So how do you maintain authenticity with something that doesn't even exist? Right. But people do still have expectations. So, you know, for example, and you make me sick, you're inside the stomach at one point. Well, what does that sound like? Well, we all know what it sounds like when you're hungry and your stomach starts to growl and when you're in a tight, confined space. So all of these things kind of mold into something that the user is going to expect to hear and, and they should be satisfied when they hear those made up noises. That's not the sound of a ribosome. Right. Yeah. That, but nobody, <laughs> nobody knows, but you can still be wrong, which is interesting. So, yeah. um, yeah. So creating authenticity using sound, um, no one really notices it unless you're way off, right? Right. So it's like, you know, either you've got a real world kind of benchmark to aspire to, or you combine a variety of allusions to that right. concept. Right. Let's transition to scope of games. Scope of games. Let's talk about it. Less wacky of a topic. Yeah, less yeah. wacky. Well, I mean, I don't know how we found wackiness in verisimilitude, to be honest, but but we did. We did. So I feel like we can go to that well again. Okay. So how do we determine the scope of a game? What do we do? Well, I think one of the key things to understand is that some games are larger than others. That's true. I would like to actually talk about Satisfaction. For sure. For a perfect example of a game that's... Very tight, very small in scope, mm -hmm. extremely focused, mm -hmm. but I think successful. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, to me, what's most interesting about this concept is how do you balance a successful experience with a right-sized experience? So with satisfaction, what you're talking about is you're teaching how fractions are, how they constitute a whole. And you're exploring that by slicing up shapes with your finger on a touch screen, yep. and it breaks up into different shapes. And you're essentially with each challenge, you're asked to create a fraction. So mm -hmm. you're given a full shape, and you know perhaps the challenge is you need to make three of four. So you cut a shape into four pieces, and you highlight three, and then you've you've succeeded. And so that's a very repeatable thing, and that's very successful. Mm -hmm. But I could see that game easily going off the rails if you added a little, if you added too much complexity. Sure. And so, you know, how do we how do we strike that balance um, between making a game that is focused that leaves aside the clutter? How do we determine what is clutter in terms of teaching a, th a mm -hmm. concept? Where's the static versus the signal, as Ooh. they say? Interesting. Yeah, that's tough because sometimes clutter is just an essential feature that was implemented poorly. Mm. Right, like if it had it worked, everyone said, "Oh, I'm so glad this is in here. It really makes the game hang together." Right, and if it, right. But since it didn't work, you're like, "Oh, we didn't need that." Mm. I remember I once went to a discussion about Skyrim, and someone was bitterly complaining about how poor the marriage simulation was, mm -hmm. and you know that was a strange axe to grind. Yeah, that's interesting to me because that, you know, that is something in the game that, you know, specific to Skyrim that mm -hmm. 
I feel was probably half baked. Yeah. The 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 adoption, like having kids thing, mm-hmm. like all that amounted to was when you came to your home base, a kid would run up to you, interrupt your what you, whatever you were doing and say, Have you brought me any presents? And you would just say, Well, I would say no. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know who, if anyone was bringing these children presents. Right. I certainly was not because right. I found them to be obnoxious. Yeah. Because they added nothing to the game. All they right. did was create a forced dialogue moment every yep. time I tried to go and access my stores of stuff in right. my house. And so that that's a perfect example of a mechanic that could have made the game infinitely more immersive right. if, it is, if it was fleshed out a little bit, but because it was so kind of undercooked, it actually just became a completely superfluous thing. Arguably, that's clutter. Maybe for some other user, they love that family thing. They yeah. It's the neatest thing ever. They're out there. Right. Just, Gathering gifts, yeah, right and left. So, yeah, but I don't, I don't. I'm not trying to get like super relativistic and be like, well, whatever it is, it's always a good feature or clutter, depending on your opinion. But I think in terms of like scoping a game and deciding what goes in and what shouldn't, you know, not to get to all broken record, but you can go back to your learning objectives, mm. right? You can say, well, do, does this extra mechanic surface or address or justify some component that? benefits the player having a better impact on uh, having a better outcome. Hmm. Sometimes you could be like, well, it doesn't directly, but it supports a bunch of other things, right? So often often you can use things like a narrative, for example, like a narrative inside a learning game. Often you're like, well, the learning objectives don't live in it, uh, but so is it clutter? It certainly can be if it's bad, mm-hmm. but... A good narrative helps foster identity, clarifies goals. Right. Uh, Gives and, a sense of purpose and direction to the exactly. game itself. Yeah. And if it's well written, it doubles as a reward. Yep. Right? So a narrative, even though it doesn't directly embed more learning content necessarily, uh, and it's a, you know, it's a tricky place to try and guarantee that someone's going to experience that content in an in a impactful way, uh, is totally a useful tool and is completely justifiable. So... Maybe another way to think of like the danger signs are like, are you adding this feature because it would be fun to make? That's not a good reason. Mm. Are you adding a feature because the team thought it was hilarious? Maybe it's good. Could be worth doing, but maybe not. You know, it, it's so there's there's a balance to be struck and you can always go back to the objectives again and be like, well, does this help the engine to have the player experience these objectives and and move forward on them. And if it doesn't, if you can't make a reasonable justification, then it's probably something that it's not even just always it's not just like take a feature out to get done sooner. See like usually you have a fixed amount of time to make a game. Mm-hmm. Everything that you take out gives you more time to spend on the things you do have making them better. That's the other thing that's sort of tricky about scope is like you don't really want to consider scope just as like the ingredients list on the side. It's not like more ingredients is a better, better cereal. Right. There's there's variables here that we're not really touching, which is like resources and time. Right. It's right. like, what is the projected release date for this? Mm-hmm. When do we need to get it out? How mm-hmm. quickly can we work on this? How much money do we have to pay people to do the things right. that we need done on this game? So, yep. all of that has an impact on scope. Totally. Um, and that, it's uh, yeah. It, I think satisfaction, in terms of scope, is very small. It's mm-hmm. a small game. Right. But it's been tinkered on here at Filament for over a year. Right. So that just that amount of time to be able to, like, put it down, hold it back up, mm-hmm. have new people 
play it, think about it, talk about improvements, do some of those things. Like that's like actually pretty valuable. It's a valuable way to spend some time to like make really good commitment to making a, a thing that's fun to play. And so in that sense, you know, there is a lot of scope in that game. Mm-hmm. It did take a long time to make and a that's lot of true. thought. That's uh, true. But it's all sort of trying to relentlessly polish on a very focused core experience. Right. That can lead to very positive outcomes. If And I try and urge the design team, like if they can think of a way to solve a design problem by simplifying the game, that's a huge win. Sure. And if they can think, if they, if they solve a problem by complicating a game, every time you do that, you also have introduced the chance that you've made another new problem. Right. And if your solution for problems is always to add more problems, you won't get done ever. <laughs> Right? True. You're, you're Sisyphus, the game designer. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, and to, you know, to double down on, on literary references. Mm-hmm. I would say that you're talking about striking. I mean, so you know, I'm, my background is writing, and one of the central rules of writing is restraint. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of what you're hitting on there, is that simplification is better. Mm-hmm. That, you know, brevity is the soul of wit, and a focused experience is generally better because it's self-contained. And so it's kind of the difference between like reading Hemingway versus reading like James Joyce and just being like awash in syllables. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's read the title of one of the stories, Awash in Syllables. You know what I'm thinking about now? John Lennon. Contronyms, actually. Oh! Believe it or not. Oh, it's time! <laughs> We've just stumbled into the contronym corner. Wait, wait, yeah, that's amazing. Did, did we pre-announce our contronym from last last week? I don't think did so. Did we give a sneak preview for our contronym? I don't... Did we, did we tease the contronym? <laughs> I feel like we did a contronym teaser. I don't know. We, uh, maybe it was a week prior to that. We really... We need to stop recording these in a fugue state. Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, if I took the fugue state off of my calendars, like I can't do things during the fugue states, I don't I don't know how much you'd see me, Brandon. <laughs> Clip. Clip? Clip is today's contronym. Okay, well, hold on. Let me think. This one's almost like a puzzle. It is. So, oh, yeah, you can, like, clip out a coupon. Mm-hmm. So you've separated the coupon from its coupon border, right? Sheet. Yeah, sheet. A coupon sheet. Paper. Yeah. (laughs) We're roughly aware how coupons work. (laughs) It's been a while. It's been a while. Uh, Yeah. And then also you could clip two things together with a paper clip or another type of clip. That's it, man. Yeah. You've unlocked it. A clip, for example. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So... Which that you may means, have purchased at a discount yeah. after clipping out a coupon. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. All right, so clip is not clip. And yet it is. And yet it is. Thanks for listening to the Film and Games Podcast. If you'd like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and well-informed, accurate observations about sports and such, subscribe today on Stitcher or iTunes. 